Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today, my guest is Mike Dyson. Born and bred in Perth, Mike's foundation is 15 years focused on nurturing his understanding of mental health and holistic well-being for individuals in his work as a Chinese medicine practitioner and founder of the practice Fremantle Chinese Medicine. However, in 2014, following his own personal mental health challenge, he became acutely aware that our culture lacks the customs, conventions and institutions for communities to truly support those who are struggling and to inspire the best in each of us. In taking action towards this, Mike is now also a senior facilitator with the Rites of Passage Institute on their making of men camps. Working with groups of men and adolescents allows him to share his love of the Australian bush and to laugh, sing, play, and most of all, to sit around the fire and share the real stuff, what's truly going on for men and boys behind the mask of masculinity. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bryn. Super. So uh, as I said in the introduction, you were born and bred in Western Australia. Correct. Tell us what it was like growing up for you here in Western Australia. What are some of your memories of that? Yeah, yeah. So, so WA for me was... It was a very sporty childhood is probably the word I'd use for it. My uh, my brother and I, I have a brother who's only a bit less than two years older than me. Yeah. And, you know, Perth, as you know, is not like today, is sunshiny most of the time. And um, most of my childhood was either out on the footy field or at the tennis court or in the front yard playing some basketball or bowling a cricket ball down the driveway. We, we were just outside and, and uh, fiercely competitive, my brother and I. Yeah, we didn't do a lot of uh, other outdoors, uh, outdoorsy stuff that other um, WA people do in terms of boating and fishing and and beachy sort of stuff. We didn't do as much of that. We did a lot of sport, a lot, a lot of just sport. constant, constant sport and competition <laughs> and competition. Yeah, absolutely. Who generally had the upper hand between you? And your oh, brother. my brother had the upper hand in everything, in absolutely everything. He was two years older than me and very talented. He was a state ranked tennis player, and you know. Just old enough to beat me in every game of table tennis we ever played, um, but you know that didn't that didn't slow me down. That didn't stop me from just having a crack. I learned from a really young age to to enjoy competition and to not be focused on winning because I never beat him. Yeah, <laughs> right. Good life lesson. Right? I became a very good, very good loser from a very young age. There we go. What does it mean nowadays for you to be a like true blue West Australian for you? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I guess after school, I did discover more of that outdoorsy uh, side of WA. I, I spent a lot of time in uh, between yelling up a Margaret River and, and Augusta down through the Boran Up Forest and, and those sort of areas and camping down on the south coast of WA. Um, and so now when I think of Western Australia, I, th- I think more of the natural beauty and it's probably more about sort of caring for the environment, being an advocate for the environment. I love telling people when they, you know, I meet people in my clinic, they say, oh, I've just only been in Australia for 12 months. We're going to go and explore the southwest. I'm like, oh, you've got to go here and you've got to go here and you visit this winery and visit this beach. And, yeah, it just, when I think about West Australia now, I just think of the the endless natural beauty that, um, that you know, we need to look after and take care of, but also to slow down and stop and to appreciate now and then. Yeah. Super stuff. Mm. So listening to the introduction that I gave, there's a strong theme of um, sort of healing and mm. um, aligning others to almost like the truth of, of things. Yeah. Where, where does that come from in you and your story? Yeah. So look, 
I guess I just painted a really positive picture of my childhood, but it was also kind of tough. My, my dad was uh, conscripted and sent to Vietnam after six months of national service. And um, those statistics came out about 10, 15 years ago that uh, children of Vietnam, Vietnam vets in Australia have three times the average rate of suicide. Right. Yeah. So dad did the national service, which taught him to fight and to react quickly and, and, my childhood was was full of my dad yelling at everyone. Um, so, you know, I was taught to sort of be on edge from a really young age. And when I, I mentioned that sort of mental health crisis that I had around 2014, I was, you know, diagnosed with anxiety. I realised I'd had it since I was a kid. Uh, and I'd had, you know, knowing what I know about um, mental health, like, like I had symptoms of depression in, in high school and I had symptoms of anxiety the whole way through my life. Um and so, yeah, I started a really personal journey at that point to, to, to heal, to come to terms with, with my, my thought process and how that's contributed to my well-being. And, and I think the big revelation for me was a book I was reading by uh, anthropologist Jared Diamond called The World Until Yesterday. And there's a quote in that that says something like, for 99% of human civilization, people have lived in small groups of 100-odd people. And that was a big revelation around that that personal health crisis that I'd been helping people with anxiety or depression and insomnia, and then releasing them onto the world, which is not not the sort of community that we're that we're built for. You know, mm. I remember driving home from the cardiologist clinic through the traffic mayhem of peak hour on Sterling Highway, and just you know, just being on edge the whole way home, thinking, how am I going to deal with this? So I guess my real passion in moving into this rites of passage work is about building communities. Communities, communities of men, but communities of men and women and, and boys and girls that support each individual with their struggles, but really lift each other up. So yeah, yeah I, I guess it's about, you know, building communities that can, that can heal those hurts, but you know, not and just coming from the hurts of your own. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think definitely. Childhood. And not just for people who are struggling with anxiety and oppression, but just for, for people who are struggling to know what their, what their true direction is to, you know, find communities that really lift each other up rather than that traditional Australian way of, you know, cutting people down when they get a bit too big for their boots. Mm. Mm. So um, so the mainstay of your work is, is Chinese medicine. Yes. Tell totally. us how you chose that, how you got into that. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was, I guess, from more of a physical health crisis uh, from my, again, personal again, from I've had, I've had asthma since I was born, since I was a kid, never really bothered me when I was a kid. I occasionally had to sit down and have a few puffs. For five minutes later, I was back out on the footy field. It never bothered me. Uh, in 2000, I started to have these severe life-threatening asthma attacks. And, you know, 500 people die every year of asthma in Australia. It's a, it's a, it's a real thing. Um, and I'd never experienced that before. It had never been a life-threatening thing. And I lost a whole bunch of weight, got down to about 64 kilos, which is pretty thin for a six, six foot man. Um, severe anxiety at the time and, and none of the standard treatments were working. So I just started looking for alternatives, looking for other ways. And, and it was through that that I noticed that there was just so much more out there than the mainstream system was, mm. was offering me. And, and I found a Chinese herb. It was four months of Chinese herbs. I put on six kilos and stopped carrying my puff around with me. And at that moment, I was like, right, there's something in this whole Chinese medicine thing. So yes. I poured my heart and soul into my studies, did really well. And Where did you study it? Uh, where? Yeah. Perth Academy of Natural Therapies, which is no longer there. Yeah. You can still study uh, acupuncture at the Endeavour College of Natural Medicine or you have to go over east to the University of Western Sydney or RMIT in Melbourne, other kind of the flagship mm. places to study in, in Australia. But it's a registered profession now, so you have to 
you have to do effectively a four-year um, qualification in Chinese medicine to be registered as a Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncturist. So you can't just go to a weekend course. And- it's it's not just the sort of thing that everyone should do. You do get physios who just do a weekend course who do what's called dry needling, yep. um, which is quite useful for muscle pain, but it's a, it's a much more simplistic system than what we use acupuncture for. To you know, We can treat pain, but we can also treat, you know, Anxiety, insomnia, migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, hot flushes, painful periods, infertility, sort of all sorts of things there's um, treatments for. So I realised the next question I'm about to ask could open up like a, a complete other podcast, but yeah, in, uh, on a summary basis, what's the principles behind um, Chinese medicine? Well, Chinese medicine is about finding balance. Right. So we treat what we call patterns of disharmony. So the fact is, well, as, as far as we can see, everyone has a, a form of imbalance in themselves. So it's about finding that balance. So mm. we don't treat migraines, for example. We treat an excess of liver yang or a or a kidney yin deficiency or, or a stagnant blood. Now, you don't have to believe that your blood is actually stagnant. They're just ways of describing particular patterns of symptoms. So right. finding finding Chinese herbs, finding diet and lifestyle advice, finding acupuncture points that will help to to balance that, that um, state of disharmony. So mm. bringing people into a into a state of harmony. So if I came to see you, yeah. what would a typical consult look consult like? Consult treatment type. Yeah, so we go, we go through the history. We, we try and identify, you know, what type of irritable bowel syndrome you have. Is it more about pain? Is it more about diarrhea? Is it more about constipation? Or, or what sort of period pain do you have? Is it more about heavy bleeding? Or is it more about cramps? Or is it does it respond to heat? Or is it more emotional for you? Um, so there's a long history taking kind of a session. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also look at the pulse in Chinese medicine theory. There's 28 different descriptions of the pulse in Chinese medicine theory to work out whether you have a deep or a superficial pulse, uh, a rapid or slow, thin or wide, mm. choppy or slippery. These, those descriptions are a little bit more difficult to get to know how to, how to find. Um, we look at the tongue and then we, we work out what your pattern of disharmony is. And then I, you know, in my clinic, I'll make a recommendation. You know, I think I can help you. It might take a lot of treatments or, I think one or two treatments will have you feeling great or I think you should take Chinese herds for three months and then people mm. decide whether they're up for it or not. And, yeah, look, it doesn't work for everyone, but, you know, the vast majority of my, my clients mm. are really happy with the change that they see in their health. So, yeah, it's, really, a, it's a really rewarding job. I can imagine. Do you ever brush up against, like, the mainstream doctors and stuff? I, like? I get quite a few doctors who send patients in my direction, oh, right. um, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, look, you – and I send quite a few few of my patients to to see their GP. People will see me, and I'll say, uh, "Have you had that checked out by your doctor? That that sounds like something you should see a GP for." Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm very much a complementary medicine practitioner rather than an alternative. Um, What's the difference between the well, two words? you know, I I like to work in harmony with GPs, with massage therapists, with chiropractors, with yeah. whatever else people are seeing, physiotherapists, whatever. Rather than say, you know, no, no, you shouldn't see your doctor. You should, you should just see me. I know the whole truth, which is just rubbish and, and really damaging to people. My, mm. my, you know, I, I really do care about people's health, and I want people yeah. to make the right choices and to feel better, whether that's through me or through their um, counselor or through their GP, whatever, whatever works. So, um, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, for some people it is an alternative. Some people come see me because they get better results than they did on their medications or whatever. And that's great. But um, yeah, I certainly try to work with other practitioners rather than instead of. Hmm. So um, tell me about the, um, the, the mental health challenge you had, because mm. it was quite pivotal. Yeah, it was for you. It was a big what, one. <laughs> t- tell us about what was happening. <clears throat> what sort of behaviors were you doing beforehand and what led up to it? And then 
what happened. Yeah, I was, I was busy for a period of, and you know, I've always been, since I started my clinic, it was, it's always been just me. Like I answer the phones, book the patients in, treat the patients, vacuum the floors, do the best statements, the whole lot. Yeah. Um, and the nature of that, the, the difficulty of that means it's difficult to take a holiday. So I take a week off. A lot of people I'll see on a regular basis. I need to see you once a week for six weeks, but oh, I'm away for that week and that week and that week. So it's always been difficult to take holidays. So that was at the end of a period of 18 months where I really hadn't taken a lot of time off at all. I'd worked really constantly, really steadily. I'd moved house. We'd taken on a big mortgage. There was a lot of financial um, financial stress. We were paying the mortgage okay, but I was, it was constantly in the back of my yeah. mind. Uh, so there was just just a lot of busyness and not a lot of rest. And and at this point, I'd, I'd spent, you know, I've been doing Chinese medicine for probably 13 years now, so eight or nine years at the time. Uh, I'd spent telling people how to bring find balance in their life, you know. <laughs> yes, I'm going to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Teaching, teaching people to meditate and, and telling people to find moments of rest and relaxation. And I, I just wasn't doing it right myself. And, and even those moments of rest and relaxation, I was like, right got to squeeze in a 40 minute jog and really um viewing those those moments of relaxation as, a, as another task to yes to tick off and and Which can so easily happen oh easily easily it's a, it's it's about for me it's about finding relaxing things to build into your schedule but also the mindset to, that you bring towards things if you're meditating because you have to find relaxation it's not going to be relaxation and if you're if you're knitting because the the gp told me to find relaxing things to do that won't be a relaxing knitting experience, you know. No. So, no. so yeah, that was a that was a real revelation. So I I started getting chest pains and feeling dizzy and, and nauseous and fluttery in my chest and went to the GP, he says, You're probably not having a heart attack. Uh, but I found something on the ECG we should check out with the cardiologist and look, if you feel any chest pain, go into the emergency department. So the next day I woke up with chest pain, obviously. And saying to my wife, No, 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 I'll be fine, I'll be fine. I'm pretty sure I'll be fine. And she, she said, well, if you're having a heart attack, I think the best thing to do is probably go to the emergency department. <laughs> so I found myself at, at Frio Hospital before the emergency department shut down there, um, sitting on the ECG machine. And a few days later, I saw the cardiologist and he said, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Your heart's absolutely fine. And I had that that reali- that stark realisation. It's like I've been getting this this finding balance thing wrong for eight years on a personal level. I haven't yeah. been finding balance. Yeah. So it really forced me to rethink things and, and also that community aspect, like, like, you know, living in a society full of fast paced busyness, even our language around what are you doing on the weekend? We don't ask people, Oh, how are you chilling out on the weekend? Yes. We ask people what they're doing. What are you getting up to? And I had someone not so long ago say to me, why don't we start conversations with, so how's your spiritual development go? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I tried it a few times. It's not, it's not, <laughs> it's just yeah. in the basis. Uh, yeah. What are you doing? You weirdo. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, I'm really into changing the culture we have around how we talk Mm. to each other and, and supporting each other and acknowledging that, that everyone's got a struggle. Everyone's got a story going on behind the, uh, behind the facade, behind what Mm. you see might be great stories. There might be good stories going on, but there's, there's bound to be struggles going on in most people's lives. So there are aspects of this in, in terms of, um, obviously you've got this access to great knowledge about harmony and everything like that. But it's one thing to have knowledge; it's another thing to go and act on it. Yeah, and, yeah. And is this a case of there being a gap between the two? Well, I think it's the way I was acting on it. I was I was acting on relaxation in a very in a very Western way. So right. so I poured myself back into my mindfulness process. Um, and look, I, I felt dramatically better over it. It took me six to nine months to really mm. get myself back on my feet, and then and then I got really into this whole community building thing. I started sitting with a men's group 
through a group called the Mankind Project WA, um, started exploring sitting with men and what was it like to be in a group and and um, that was a that was a mind blowing experience mm. as well. So d- during this period of time, yeah, you're, you're mm. having this like stark realization. What what were the sort of things that were going through your head, and what were the sort of things you were telling yourself? Is all this truth is probably coming at you left, right, and center? Yeah, well, I, I guess the big one is just that I, that I've, I've been doing it wrong, and I was, I was I'm a failure as a as a as a right. Chinese medicine practitioner. It's like I've been I've been teaching people wrong, um, or certainly implementing it wrong in in my way. So there's this, there was a lot of judgment around myself around how I'd been uh, I'd been doing things, and um, but yeah, I, I learned really quickly. I saw a counselor and started to look back at my my childhood and and the parenting that I got from my from my father and from my from my mum. That sort of didn't really feel supported and nurtured and nur- I didn't have a relaxing childhood and I was constantly on edge with my father's history after the war. Um, so it really helped me to reanalyze that sort of stuff and start to learn how to so just give that to myself, not blaming anyone for my problems, but start yeah. to think, right, well, well, how do I give myself that ser- sense of nurturing and how do I give myself that sense of, of, of encouragement and inspiration? So, yeah, that's, that's partly what I try to do now is, is to teach groups how to really support each other and to really encourage and, and inspire. Excellent. So, so one of the, the key things was going on this men's camp. Oh, a big you. thing, yeah. How did you find out about that? How did you make the decision to go on it? Yeah, it was, it was a, a word of mouth thing. A, a couple of, a, a, One of my clients, my, my patients at work actually mentioned, oh, this Mankind Project weekend would be really amazing for you. You'd absolutely love it. And I think we need more men like you in the community, I think he said. What does he mean by um, that? <laughs> well, uh, I think with, with a lot of men's groups, you, you get people who are struggling with anxiety or alcoholism or relationship mm-hmm. breakups, but you don't get a lot of men out there just in a benevolent way just looking to lead more in their community. Oh, how can I support other men? Mm-hmm. And that was part of what I was doing. Like, it'd take, like I said, it taken me nine months to really get over it. I got into a really good space where I was feeling well. Um, and, yeah, this bloke said, yeah, we need more good, solid men like yourself who are, who are interested in helping others and, and passionate about the way we redefine masculinity, which is really another big, big piece of my journey is the story of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I'm, I'm interested in work. I really had a desire to work more with groups, whether with men or with, with women or whoever. And I thought, yeah, well, this is a good place to start. So I, um, yeah, as, as someone who was interested in this, because the Mankind Project, uh, the new warrior training is really built around the traditional aspects of a, of a rite of passage. So I was just interested to explore to look what it, mm. what it looked like, and so um, what did you experience? Li- little did I know it would be quite a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> quite a profound personal uh, transformation. It was it was in, an incredible um, <laughs> awareness for me around how um, how different it can be when men when you create a space for men to just openly share what's really going on. Um, I think I went in with, oh, yeah, this, this sort of observer sort of mindset. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, this could be, I can see how it's powerful for him and for him. And, and it got to the, the Sunday morning and I was, I was sharing in a, sitting in a circle of men and sharing about a powerful part of my, um, childhood and my, and my fear around, around suicide and other people that I love losing to suicide. And, um, you know, one person's talking to time and I'm, I'm in tears and I was flowing. And one of the other blokes who was just, who, who I judged to be just this conservative straight off the shelf, doesn't share his emotions type of a guy. He looked me in the eye and he said, I know what you're going through. And I just started crying again. <laughs> and I just, th- that feeling of just being completely understood 
in the deepest, softest, most vulnerable part of myself by a by a six foot ninety kilo strong, commercially successful man in conservative clothing with neat hair, <laughs> yeah. looked into the depths of my heart and said, "I understand the pain that you are suffering," and that that was a life changing experience for me. Um, so from there, I was I was just thinking I, I need to get this out there. To I think more more men in particular need to experience what it's like to be truly heard and understood mm. by other men. And it's not it doesn't have to be a soft and airy fairy thing. It's a bloke saying I'm really struggling with this. Another bloke going, Yeah, I mm. get that. To me, it's mm. it's a it's a human need that I, I as, missed out on for the first 40 years of my life, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's as opposed to keeping it all to yourself and yeah. bottled up. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I had Leon Ruri on here, mm. um, and he, he he summed it up as in silence is a killer. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally, silence and, and isolation. And and the interesting thing that I find is is most blokes, when you ask them, they feel like they're there for their mates, which is true. We all feel like we've got each other's back. Yeah. But then you flip it in the other direction. Do you feel comfortable sharing what's really going on for you with your mates? And only about a quarter of men will say that they actually feel comfortable sharing it. Yeah. So if I'm not willing to have the conversation with my mates, <laughs> then who's having the conversation? <laughs> no one's having the conversation. Well, not no one. There are there are plenty of good men out there who know how to share with their mates. But there's, yeah. I can tell you for sure, while, there's a lot of men who don't know how to do and it. And while we all confide in our, you know, our wives and our partners and our girlfriends, I wouldn't say all of us. Yeah, no. <laughs> some, some men really okay. struggle with that as well. Yeah, true. True, because, you know, inherently they do view the world in a very mm. different way. Yeah. And and you can try and explain it and, and they can do their best to get it, mm. same as we do for them. Yep. Um, but ultimately, right. Yeah. <laughs> and and a lot of men find it, find it difficult to be vulnerable with other men, but some men find it even more difficult to be vulnerable with women. Like they feel they have this need to be the, oh, I'm supposed to be the rock. I'm supposed to be solid. I'm supposed to be dependable. Yeah. And I think men should be that. Men should be strong and solid and dependable. But there's also times where you need to say, hey, I can't be that right now. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Yeah. So I think we need both of those things. It's not about turning men from this strong, solid men into soft, gooey balls of fluff. It's about being strong and solid and also being courageous enough to be, you know, to, to say when, I, when I'm struggling mm. with with men, with women, not with, you know, the people who are taking your order for French fries at McDonald's, but, you know, with the yeah. right people at the right time, let's create the spaces where, where men and women can share what's, what's, what's really going on. So that's, that's really what the Rites of Passage work is, is very much about, acknowledging transformations and, and celebrating what's really great, but also finding spaces where we can share what's really going on. Awesome. Mm. So... Having been to the man camp, how did you decide that this you were going to go further and actually become a facilitator? And yeah, well, that's a it's, it's one thing to go on a man camp and have a yeah. you know, profound experience yeah. and then come back and change the way you live life. It's another thing to then go right. I want to go back in there and help others to do that. Yeah, so uh, I'd been thinking I wanted to work more with groups as well as just the just what I do in Chinese medicine one on one with people. I wanted to work more with with groups and. Um, a friend of mine had put me on to uh, Dr. Anna Rubenstein, who uh, runs what's now called the Rites of Passage Institute, it used to be called the Making of Men, and he's been involved with Rites of Passage work since, I think, 1994, programs that he's been involved in. He's had 100,000 men and boys and now women and girls go through his programs. So I was really interested in what he was doing. 
uh, and he runs a uh, global rites of passage leadership training where people can learn the rites of passage framework. I just helped him, supported, co-facilitated with him last weekend down in Busselton. Um, and in, introduced the process to another 15 people who are interested. And I was just one of those interested people. So I went across to, to Melbourne and did his, his training and learnt the, um, learnt the framework of a rites of passage that people have been using in rites of passage work for 20 years. And it really comes from anthropologists who study the traditional ways that rites of passage have been done in, in indigenous and, mm. and tribal societies back in the day. And also you could argue it's present in religious societies and even modern societies. It's even present in the way we do graduation ceremonies and, and other things that happen these days as, as recognition of rites of passage. So yeah, I went and did his training and found that to be another profound experience. It's a really experiential training. He kind of takes you through the elements on a really personal level. So you do it yourself. You kind of it's it's tasting the cake we call it. So it's not it's not a, a, a full rite of passage experience, but you get to taste a rite of passage experience whilst learning the rite of passage framework. It's a really profound learning that the rites of passage institute we run there. Um, and so after doing that, I just I just thought I just want to see one of these camps, one of these father son camps. So we run them now. I'm involved with facilitating these camps now. We run them four or five times a year at. Uh, at uh, Anna Rubenstein's property in northern New South Wales in the Byron Bay hinterlands. And uh, the last camp we had was a month or so ago with 24 boys and 24 dads from all over the country and they come together and it's and it's basically a camp for families who really want to recognise that something is changing for our son. He is leaving the world of boyhood and becoming a man and we want to mark it and we want to help him to know how to navigate it. We want to know that it's okay for him to share what's going on. We want to know that it's okay for him to recognize what he really wants. And we want to recognize what is really great in him. We recognize the unique individual gifts, strengths, and talents. Because in a healthy community, everyone has something to offer. Mm. And kids aren't being told this stuff on a regular basis. What is great about this kid? Let's let's really recognize this. This is not blood smoke over us, is it? Um, well, it, yeah, it's not, and it's not just saying that I love you. Yeah. It's saying like this is actually what you're good at. Yes. This is this is Being the this is the quality you bring. Like, yeah. and that's different for every kid. Some kids are super creative. Some kids are really dependable. Some kids are keen observers. Some kids have a great like I've met met kids on camps who just talk about this incredible passion for making things mm. and building things and wiring things up. That's not something I know nothing about. Yeah, um, and, and being supported by the community around. You. Yeah. So you're amazing at that. We really want to support you in exploring that passion for building stuff. Because mm. if it, you know, the philosophy of this work is that if everyone's really doing stuff that they were, they were, they're really built for and it fits with their strengths and talents and values, they're just going to be good at that. They're going to be, mm. they're going to do well in that in that industry. And you, you've got to balance that out with paying the bills. Like we're not yeah. saying you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not an advocate for follow your passion over over paying paying yeah, the, yeah, paying yeah. the rent. I'm really good at sitting on the sofa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know you've got to, you've got to be a, being a man in the world. A man in the world takes responsibility. That means paying the rent, putting food on the table, mm. and follow what's what's really useful for you and it might not be as a career your your passion might be surfing which means you should surf all the time and also have a job that provides for yourself and and whomever you love do mm. do all of those things it's not it's not one or the other mm. it's, it's really interesting because uh, a few weeks back i was i was sitting with uh, dr richard wally mm -hmm. and i took and he was explaining how his career in um, advocacy for aboriginal rights and yeah. i started quite early at the age of 23 and i was like it's quite early. He goes, 
Yeah, but the elders around me noticed something in me and they yeah. brought it out yeah. and they and they supported me and yeah. that's how I've Yeah, it wasn't just his mum and dad, it was all yeah. his other mums and dads and yeah. aunties and uncles around him that helped him to flourish and notice something great in him and, and helped him to go forward. That, that's an essential part of, that we try to build into a rite of passage. So camps that I do, I work with the Rites of Passage Institute, I've worked with schools, I'm working in an amazing program with Christchurch Grammar School at the moment, but I also work with private groups as well. So uh, a, a dad can bring his son and a couple of his mates and the, you know, the boys' dads and a couple of cousins and, the, you know, we get a group of men together. Um and it's about building a community that will recognize what is that kid good at. Let's, let's go. And that's a, it's a beautiful example of elders of the community recognizing what that, that kid has a propensity for and, and building him up, lifting him up and into that. Mm. And, you know, yeah, how well do we know our grandparents? How well do we know our uncles and aunties? How, well, how many of those conversations are we having? How much of a chance are our uncles and aunties and, and, you know, older men and women in the community getting to really get to know those young people, to know sort of how to help to guide them on that path towards a really, you know, meaningful life, a life with purpose, you know. Mm. That's a beautiful example. I love that. That's the kind of stuff we're trying to build. Yeah. So just so we're clear, when you, you use the word rite of passage a lot, yeah. what do we actually mean by rite of passage? Yeah. So um, it comes from uh, anthropologist Arnold Van uh, Gennep, who wrote a book about 100 years ago now um, on his uh, studies on traditional societies. And he found that traditional societies would always mark the transition points of life, whether so that traveled the world to different. He traveled the world in different countries. And mm. religious historians will say as well that this has happened throughout history whether it's a community marking their their boys becoming men or their girls becoming women or women becoming mothers or men becoming fathers or becoming grandparents or becoming elders of the community, marriages. These are all what we call rites of passage. Mm. So rites being rituals that are ongoing and ceremonial mm. that mark a transition from one part of life to the next. So, you know, Anna Rubenstein's research and the, the the writing on anthropology shows that there's essential elements that these rites of passage ceremonies had. Uh, they were separated from their regular community. They shared stories, whether it was through sitting and talking or through song or through dance or through art. They shared the knowledge of that community. Mm -hmm. um, and so separation from your normal place of life, sharing of stories, recognizing that individual and what, what that individual's gifts and strengths and talents are, creation of a, a vision for their future and challenge. Challenge is an essential part of it as well. So that might have been uh, a group of girls having to dance all night uh, or keep a fire going all night might have been their challenge as a, as a group of young girls to step into womanhood or a boy might have had some scarification or marking or he might have had to hunt a lion or, or something like that to prove that he was ready for for manhood. And, you know, so the theory is when we're not providing this challenge for our for our young men and young women, where they're going out and finding it themselves by, you know, risky behaviour and extreme sports and extreme alcoholism and, mm. and these types of things. So it's so the idea is that the our, our young people are already doing this. So let's create there's a, a drive. More, yeah, there's a drive. It's innate. It's it's within us. The need to share stories, the need to be challenged. We're not building we're not really challenging kids in a, in a healthy way these days to help them to build resilience. Uh, so we want to challenge them. We want to share stories. We want to recognize their unique gifts, strengths and talents and want to do it in a safe way that's, that's surrounded by their community mm. rather than just having them go off and do it by themselves. Yeah, I love that because, yeah, if you look at, look at where we're at nowadays, there is no great 
marking of your move from one place yes. to another. Where where is the challenge of moving from one place to another? But also all this wisdom and knowledge that you can tap into as you go from one stage to another to another from those that are elder, been there, done it. Yeah, yeah. You know, is 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 just absent. You know, we we I'm going to grossly stereotype here, but there's this, <laughs> you know, there's this growing um, group millennials who who are typified by I know it all. I don't need to, you know. Now whether that's a real thing or whether that's just a, a talked about thing, but you can see how in the absence of rite of passage, in the absence of um, knowledge being handed down, so like, well, I know stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that could potentially have been where said about res- my generation yeah, as teenagers as well. The elders, but- and there's not, yeah, there's not that connection. And it could be argued that our elders aren't being celebrated either. Like, do we really celebrate elderhood in our society? No, we chuck them in a home. We have plastic <laughs> surgery. We die how to pretend that we're not getting old. Very true. Um, and then when you get to that point, you just, like you said, you just get ditched off into a home. So we're, we're not, as a, as a community, we're not building <laughs> connections between elders and, and young people and Look, one of my greatest joys of, of parenting is to watch the relationship my two daughters have with, with their grandmother. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Mm. Um, but I'd love it if they had that relationship with more older people, you know? So, so yeah, I think there's, there's, I think what you're, what you're talking to there is a real disconnect between elders and young. I've met some amazing millennials. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, no, of course. I'm trying to. But but yeah yeah definitely um we're we're definitely lacking that connection between between elders and and young people and that's that's part of what we're doing we're trying to bring that back and have elders on our program and we're really trying to recognise elders on our program we we line participants up on some camps and say well who's the oldest man here let's all celebrate the fact that this bloke is sixty two years old and he's Mm. he's lived more years and had more experience than us and you know you're not. You're not an incredible, incredible person just for having lived longer, but I think there's something we can recognise in that. There's a, an, an eldership that that I know when we have, I have older blokes around me on a camp. I, I I feel that. I feel support and I feel backed up and I feel like I'm connected to something a bit more timeless than just young blokes having fun. Yeah. So what does a a modern day rite of passage look like? And where where do they typically turn up during the cycle of life? Well, the you know the big ones that that I work with a lot is around fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old boys. Uh, yeah. There's also amazing programs that happen for girls around that age. Um, you know, there's also a need for for school leavers. Um, I'm really passionate about creating programs for men. What, how are we supporting men in becoming dads? How are we supporting men around around marriage? Like, look at the standard bucks party. That's that's a rite of passage. It's not a healthy one. In, in my opinion, in my personal opinion, some might some might think it's a really healthy one, but to me, getting as drunk as you can, tying your mate to a lamppost and putting money down a stripper's bra or whatever is is you know to me not a healthy celebration of 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 the end of of single life and and the beginning of marriage. Like, why aren't we taking men out into the bush and having real conversations about how to maintain friendships? How are we going to support this bloke to have the marriage he wants? Mm. What kind of marriage does he want? How does he want to be a great husband? How are we going to balance him being a great husband and us being good mates to him? Rather rather than this whole like wife versus mates kind of dynamic, yes. really unhealthy dynamic that can be set up. So that's another idea I've got in the in the pipelines. But my, <laughs> most of the work I do is around uh, adolescent boys, 14, 15, 16-year-old boys and recognising that challenge. And, look, we can't just take the traditional traditions of a, an African rite of passage or a – 
yeah. or, a, or a culture that I don't belong to and transplant that into um, – was it the one you told me before? We're not going to start sticking their hands in. in we're not going to stick. Yeah. we're not going to start sticking their hands in in gloves full of giant bullet ants like they do in the Satir Mawe tribe in in the Amazon jungle. It's not relevant to us. We're not preparing our kids to go and hunt a puma or to to fight off a rival clan. We're preparing them for the challenges of of modern life. So mm. the challenge looks different. The challenge definitely looks different. We're not Are hunting. Examples of the challenge. Well, it is a bit of sacred men's business around oh, right, there. Right. I don't like to. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you need to come and. I don't like to. Yeah, yeah. You might have Fair to come enough. and have a look. But we challenge them. We challenge them physically. We challenge them mostly. We challenge them to open up. We challenge them to leave their leave their mobile phones at home. We challenge them to eat not their normal food. We challenge them to sleep out in the bush and not sleep in their comfy bed. We challenge them to share what is going on for them. We challenge them to be vulnerable. Mm. We challenge them with silence. We challenge them with changes of food. So there's 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 different things we challenge them with and, and some other things that we throw in there. But we, we create stuff that's relevant to us. So, yeah, we separate them from their normal way of being. A lot of it happens out in the bush. Um, we create a safe space for them to share what's going on. We recognise their ways. We recognise their, their strength in ways that are authentic for them and authentic for us. So. It's beautiful to watch. It's, it's, yeah, it can be a really powerful experience and a really great bonding experience between a group of boys and between a boy and his father or a male mentor if his, if his dad's not around. Um, and as well as a personal experience. So it really is a personal experience as well as being a community experience at the, at the same time. And our community needs this. Our, our community doesn't need 30 year old men who are acting like boys, 50-year-old. Like, have you seen parliamentary question time? It's, it's incredible <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> the immaturity that some of our, some of our adults are, are showing. We need to switch from, from boy behaviour and, and girl behaviour, from child behaviour to adult behaviour. And we need to – our, our feeling is that when we mark that transition, have real conversations around it, it gives us a vocabulary, vocabulary that we can take away from camp and support our young people to step into adulthood. Yeah, I like it because I, I'm getting this visualization of once you go through a rite of passage, you almost put a you put a seal over a time mm. that you've been through, and when things get tough and you want to go back to a comfortable place, you, you don't go, you don't regress back to yeah. childish behaviours. You're like, yeah. right, no, I don't go back there anymore. I go forwards into something new. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, and it's unknown, and it's new to me. But that's how we progress and go forwards, as opposed to. Often we see this um, race to the lowest common denominator. Mm, absolutely, and it's look. We acknowledge that that a boy doesn't become a man in the space of a four day camp. Yeah. Um, but like I said, we're building the vocabulary so a man can pull his son aside and say, "Hey, you said you were, you wanted to become this kind of man. I've noticed you're doing this with your with your sister. How does that sit for you?" And the boy can go, yeah, right, I, I remember okay, that yeah, commitment yeah. that I made. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I want it. And, and boys, in my experience, desperately want to become men. They want to be acknowledged as men. They want mm. the responsibility as men. They want the rights of men. They want responsibility, um, which, you know, we can make those easy judgments about millennial that's like, oh, we don't want to take responsibility for actions. It's like we're not giving them a chance to step up to responsibility. Yeah. So we need to make room for them to step up. But, yeah, really it's. It's planting a seed in these young people that hopefully their community can support them after after a rite of passage experience to become that man they want to become or young woman they want to become if it's a woman's camp. Where do you see um, modern masculinity in Australia? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. So, I, I, look, in the work I'm in, I, I see lots of people doing a lot of amazing stuff. But, yeah. you know, on the flip side of you it. come out of that. 
yeah, you go back out into the real world and you you hear some of the things that men say, men say and you, you see some of the way men approach their health. And, and in my clinic, I had a patient a year or two ago who came to see me and on his fourth consult, the fourth time he came to see me, he told me that he was actually coming to see me for depression. Right. It took him four hours of me sitting with him asking about stuff for him to actually open up and tell me what was going on. Right. So I think we've got a real significant issue if if men can't admit that I have an issue here that, need, mm. that I need help with. So, did he know it in himself when he first came to see you, or was he, it was it as a consequence well, of the four? That's a really good question. It's a really good question. Realization. Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a part of. It. I think partly he wasn't super clear on that's what was going on, but he he knew he had a he had an issue that he needs it's help. It's one with. thing to deny yourself; it's another thing yeah. just not to know yourself. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he so he came in with back pain and feeling not very good and maybe not knowing that it was a depression. Um, but yeah, knowing that he needed some help on a, on a mental health level, but not really having the language to say, Oh, I've been really struggling with this. Um, and he was an older guy from a, from a, you know, baby boom sort of a generation. And, and I think in those, in those older men, it can be, it can be even more entrenched. Like this is how you're supposed to be as a man. I, I sit around in a camp with a, a bunch of 15 year olds and I say, what messages are you receiving from the world about how you're supposed to be as men? What messages are you receiving from school, from teachers, from parents, from boys, from girls, from social media, from music videos? Like, how are we supposed to be as men? And they say, oh, we're supposed to be tough. We're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be buff and massive and muscly and we're supposed to have all the hot babes and we're supposed to have heaps of money and we're supposed to drive a flash car and we're supposed to get good grades and we're supposed to be intelligent. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to be all these things. And if we don't have a space to share that, oh, I don't feel like I'm doing all those things all the time, you know, and then you, you ask them to show of hands, who doesn't feel buff and massive? They all put their hands up pretty much. Who doesn't feel like they're really good with the ladies? Who doesn't feel like they're super successful at school? And they all putting their hands up. They, none of them feel like they're meeting up to this, um, this ideal masculine model. So I think we need to develop, each develop our own model of what kind of man we're striving to be. I want to be a strong, dependable, man i also want to be nurturing and and there for my for my daughters and for my wife and for for mates that that i that i love so i i strive for a masculinity where we can be strong and dependable and and love footy and and love having a beer on the weekend and also be courageous enough to be vulnerable and to be know how to be supportive and learn the skills how to how to support a mate because we just we don't have the vocabulary for it we don't have the skills but to answer your question i think um i think i'm striving for a masculinity where every man gets to define what kind of man he wants to be mm. if you don't want to be a, a soft gooey man don't be that man but but know that it's okay for other people yeah, yeah. Who, who might want to be that mm. you know if they want to be you know wear a tie-dyed shirt and put flowers in the hair and dance and whatever that might not fit the traditional mode of masculinity, they should be able to be that. It's almost the next level of bravery and courage, isn't it? It's a, it's a big be thing. your own man. Yeah, yeah. To, to be a man that doesn't fit into that stereotypical mould, hmm. it takes a, a, level of, a level of courage. But hmm. I notice in these, in these younger, younger kids, they're kind of, they're open to it, they're ready for it. Yeah. They, yeah. they, I think, can see um, what they, unhealthy masculinity yeah, is. Yeah, they're coming, probably bring. coming into it and, and looking at um, evidence and feedback. You know, we've been possibly caught in it, but now you're seeing like uh, high rates of depression, anxiety, et cetera. Mm. So, you know, the results of that, it's not working. 
Yeah. Well, and yeah, and I, I certainly my belief, I don't know if there's science behind it, that when we, that when we rigidly adhere to those traditional models where I know that we're less likely to ask for help. I know that I have seen statistics actually on men who, who feel that we should rigidly adhere to traditional masculinity are more likely to end up with anxiety and depression because it's so hard to, to meet up to that. Mm. They're also less likely to ask for help, which is a really dangerous combination of things. If you're more likely to oh, get yeah. depression and less likely to ask for help, you know, Where's the most, finish? the most, the leading, the leading cause of death for Australian men between the age of 15 and 44 is suicide. This is a, this is a, uh, an emergency, you know. It's time we started to start starting to reframe this. And it could be argued that when a man, you know, like I said, those 15-year-olds said they're supposed to have all the hot babes and and be successful and be in control all the time. Well, how does that how does that convert in a uh, domestic situation where I don't feel like I'm in control? Maybe there's something behind domestic violence as well. So maybe men feeling like they have to be hyper-masculine and in control, maybe that's a root cause behind domestic violence as well. So maybe freeing men from this, you know, uh, rigid traditional uh, modes, mm. maybe that will help their mental health as well as help their um, the way they relate to women as well. Maybe they can have better relationships and maybe women can be happier in those relationships as well. Mm. I think um, I, I watched a podcast once with uh, a lady called Esther Perel and mm. um, one of the things that really struck me was that she she was talking about the you know the female revolution and feminism finding their place. But she said, our, our, our female revolution will, will not be complete until men have finished that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's. She said they haven't even started. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <They've>, <laughs> well, I, we haven't. Yeah. I could argue the start started, but we're, we're yeah. just at the tip yeah, of the iceberg or, you know, a drop of water on top of the tip of yes. the iceberg. Um, it's, it's at the very beginning. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm a, I have strong beliefs in, in gender equality, but. Mm. I don't think that will happen for, I don't think women will achieve uh, equality until men realize the liberation of letting go and having to be in control all the time. Mm. Ab- absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree with that more. It's intriguing because I, you know, I've been doing this podcast for some time. And one of the things that led me to do into this was my own sort of awakening of the fact that we, we live by life scripts. Mm. And mm-hmm. and we were. Uh, I'm noticing more and more. I noticed it myself, but now in in others, and, and and your story is a very similar one. In that we live by life scripts of these expectations and what we see externally, and we say, "Oh, that's how we should uh, should be." And then all of a sudden, events will asp- conspire. They're really often quite painful. Mm. Uh, events will conspire to realign you back to where you truly are and your essence should be. And, and I've been trying to unpeel the scripts and sort of start to give them names. So money and work is one. <laughs> Mask, the, you know, um, gender role is, yeah. is another one that's starting to come up. And, it, and it's fascinating because, yeah, what, what, is, what does it mean to be a man? Oh, you can see hundreds of different examples out there. But ultimately, it's what's going to work for you. Yep. Not just now, but something you can grow into and be comfortable with and that will challenge you. So, you know, as I said right at the very intro, so you can be all you can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and <clears throat> so I'm all about creating the space for, for men, you know, I largely work with men to to have the conversations around what, what does that even mean? Mm. 
and to give them the experience of actually actually sharing openly and and mm. being able to see that that's that's a thing that men can do and it's and from what i see men have an incredible capacity to support each other um it's really amazing to watch watch men to learn that sort of vocabulary around how to actually how to actually let a mate know that you have his back yeah that is an incredibly manly thing in my in my book, supporting a mate, being there for a mate, really being there for a mate yeah. to the point that he knows that he can actually tell you what's going on. Yeah, I think that's massive. Well, uh, you know, I've not had a background in 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 the armed forces, but one of the things I hear from some of the friends that do is that they, when they leave the armed forces, they miss that camaraderie oh, that yeah. your friend has your back, as in yeah. he has your life in yeah. your hands. Yeah, in his hands. That's massive. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, how have your own personal belief and values been reshaped and refined through the journey that we've been talking about? Um, I think, I don't know if they've been reshaped. I think I've just become more aware of them. Right. Um, I yeah, I, I think, and I remember after I had that, having the, the anxiety th- attack that I was worried was a heart attack, I remember seeing a counsellor. I only did six sessions with a, an amazing counsellor. Um, and one of the, one of the really great things to me, he said, is if there's something that's really important to you, you have to do it. You can't be mentally healthy if you're not doing those things that are super important to you. And I realized that in the back of my head, I had these images of hiking on the Bibbulmun track, uh, you know, camping out in the bush in the middle of nowhere. I, I'd had these images bouncing around in the back of my head and that, um, that that was a super important thing to me. And I just hadn't been doing it. Mm. Um, and so, you know, going out to the bush and having these beautiful conversations um, and having fun with a group of men and singing songs and laughter and joy, it's like I've, I've realised throughout this process that these things are things that I value. These, these are things that I, that I find super important. Yes. Going, going camping, sitting with groups of people around the fire, having important conversations, singing a song around the campfire, having a laugh, having a cry, all of these things are super important to me. Um, so I think it's really unearthed uh, a passion in me to to change the way the way we view masculinity mm. and to change the way uh, we are as a community and to change the way we celebrate those transition points of of life. So it's really helped me to I think unearth my values of of community mm. and nature and and conversation and and caring support mm. for each other. Do you think that's your purpose here? Um, right now, I would say my purpose is. Is building communities that that support the difficulties and and in, and inspire the best in people. I feel like that's my important. My purpose is is rebuilding communities, communities that support and inspire. Outstanding. Mm. So, what does the next three to five years look like for Mike? Um, I, I've done a lot of that thinking and a lot of that planning, and I'm a natural planner. I like <laughs> I like to spend hours writing plans, whether they come to fruition or not, is a different is a different thing. At the moment, there's a lot happening in this space. There's a lot of people doing amazing work around around masculinity and around men's work and around rites of passage stuff for for boys and girls and and men and women. So. I'm not super attached to what that looks like at the moment. Um, there's a, I'll continue to do a lot of work with the Rites of Passage Institute in their making of men camps and develop new and exciting programs with them. Uh, I'll continue work with schools, like I said, the amazing program we're doing at Christchurch Grammar School up in, in Claremont, and I'll continue, continue to run camps for, for small groups of, of, um, 
of men and boys who, who want to learn how to rebuild community and to recognize that transition from, from boyhood to manhood. And I'll, uh, I'll somehow try to balance that with a, a Chinese medicine practice <laughs> and, uh, and a family of, uh, of an amazing wife and two, two beautiful growing girls as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm just finding lots of opportunities are coming my way and I'm just saying yes to the ones that have me building, building inspiring communities. Mm. Um, and, and not necessarily yes to the ones that don't, don't fit with my values. So look, I just want to do more of that and, and what exactly that looks like. I'm, I'm not trying to influence that too much at the moment. I've got more work than I can sort of, uh, yeah. <laughs> that I yeah. can say yes to at the moment. So. Yeah. Uh, I suppose it's not necessarily, you don't have to know how the dots join. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, and I know what looks right for me when yeah. someone rings me and say, Hey, do you want to get involved in this pro process, this, this program? I can, I can match that against what I know I want to be doing and say, yes, this fits, this fits for me or, or, yeah. no, or no, it doesn't. So it becomes quite clear. That- yeah. Yeah. Totally. What do you do to um, regularly keep yourself sort of grounded and bring yourself back to you, to mind? Uh, I have a I have a pretty important mindfulness practice that I <laughs> developed after that uh, crisis yeah. point in 2014. Uh, so I meditate every day. I don't set a limit on my meditation, but I I meditate every every night before bed. If I'm in the mood, I'll sit there for 25 minutes. If I'm not in the mood, I might only sit there for a minute and a half. But I. I make that a part of my practice. And then I also have moments of mindfulness. When I, when I arrive at work, I sit in my chair and I take three slow breaths. Mm. When I have my cup of tea in the morning, I try to finish my cup of tea without looking at the computer or the phone. It, usually I'm either the first one up or my wife's out exercising and I have the house to myself. You know, I try and build in these quiet moments. I take yeah. the dog for a walk and I listen to a podcast. So I make sure I really build these moments of relaxation. And possibly the most important one, before I turn off the taps in the shower every morning, I take a breath and I recite my life's mission, which is around building communities to to support and inspire. And so I hopefully I start my day on the right track. Yeah. And so, I, yeah. And I exercise and I eat well and I do all that stuff too. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's uh, sort of maintenance and what have you. Yeah. If you could go back to the um younger twenty year old version of yourself yeah. by, and give that Mike a piece of advice, what would it be? Jeez, oh, that's a tough question. That's a really tough question. The twenty-year-old version of myself was was having a great time, but totally lost for direction. Yeah, I th- I think I'd really want to want to tell him that he can do amazing things. Yeah, I think that really is the piece that's missing. Is that that I'd love every twenty-year-old in this country to know that that if you can really connect with, I think there's an amazing thing within it. Everyone has a brilliance. Everyone has a, you know, what I call warm, magnificent sunshine. And now I'm starting to sound like a bit of a hippie, but <laughs> I think that everyone has something special to offer our community, whether that's like I talked about engineering skills or creativity or performance or organisation, everyone's got something to offer. And I would go back and I would tell my my 20-year-old self to to find what you have to find within yourself what you have to offer because you have something great to bring to the world. To even, even maybe it's just to your family. Maybe it's not a world changing thing. Not all of us have to change the world, but to find what that great thing is that you have to offer your family or your community and, and celebrate it. Don't, don't let the, don't let the world cut you down like a tall poppy. Um, celebrate what's, know what's great in yourself and, and celebrate it. Superb. And, um, just closing, what if you could sum up any sort of bit of advice that you'd like to get out there to the listeners, what would that be? 
Uh, I guess it would be on, along similar similar lines, not not to just be there for other people, but think about how you can share what's really going on for you. Create spaces where we can share what is going on because everyone has a story. You just don't know the depths of struggles that people have. They might have not much going on. They might be in really in the depths of it. Create spaces where you can share what is going on, where you can recognise what is great in each individual, and, and the rights of passage framework is a real and ideal time to, to do that. Mm. I think that's it. Create, create the space to really support each other and to really lift each other up. Superb. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks um, for having me. It's, it's been fascinating <laughs> listening to your story uh, and how it's moved, um, moved through time, but also um, what you've learned and how you shared it and how you've articulated it. And, um, yeah, the males and masculinity is, is something that's popped up in previous podcasts and it will continue to. And I think there's, um, like I said, we've, we've put the first drop on the yeah. iceberg. We've got a long way to go. Um, but it's exciting times. It is. The ball's rolling. Indeed. So Mike, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers.